We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7 this morning, continuing on in the series. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to open your word, to come publicly in the midst of our brothers and sisters, God, whom you have redeemed. Lord, to open your scripture and to consider together the great, great value that you are. Lord, I pray that this causes us to walk faithful. It causes us to react and worship. Lord, I pray that uh, you would, Lord, expose things in our own heart and our life, Lord, which fall short of the worth of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Hebrews chapter 7 We're going to be introduced to a character in the Bible who has a role of priesthood that is maybe a little bit foreign to us as Gentiles. But that role, that role of priesthood, that Melchizedek priesthood is so important for us to understand how we come to God through Christ. Not only that, but it fulfilled the promise that God gave Abraham. Hebrews 6, verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. Skip down to verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Get that. We have this, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a man who lived... Uh, during the time of Abraham. And he's only mentioned in three places in the Bible. One is in Genesis 14, when it actually records him alive. Second, his priesthood is mentioned in Psalm 110. And third, here in Hebrews. So you have him being mentioned in Genesis 14, a thousand years later, David mentions him, and a thousand years later, here. But this is, a, this is a thread, a very thin thread that goes through Scripture to explain something very powerful. And so we're going to look at that this morning. But let's go there. Genesis 14. Since there's only a few places, uh, a couple of other places where Melchizedek's mentioned, it won't be too burdensome for us to look into those this morning. Genesis 14. 14, starting in verse 17, speaking of Abram, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham, Abram, by God most high, professor of heaven and earth, 
And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's it. We got no information on Melchizedek, other than he's a priest of the Most High God. And Abram responds by giving him a tenth. He's a king of Salem and a, and a priest of the Most High God. That's all. That's all. A lot of people want to make a big deal out of this person, Melchizedek. I think that's silly because there's a reason why his silence exists in Scripture. In Sherlock Holmes, there's a mystery that Sherlock is solving, and one of them is that the place where someone's murdered, they have a dog that always barks at strangers, but the night of the murder, there was no barking. So whoever the murderer was, was obviously somebody known by the dog, right? So silence says something. In this instance, the fact that we don't know anything about Melchizedek, and I'll, I'll, I'll revisit that later, is a pretty big deal. But he just, that's it. Okay, and then a thousand years, nobody says anything about Melchizedek. It's very weird. I mean, this guy has no birth record. We don't know if he has some, so this line goes on, this priesthood. It must have been a confusing thing for many a rabbi. In fact, if you ever want to entertain yourself, just look into what all the theories of all the rabbis said about Melchizedek. There's some pretty wild stuff about this guy that they just kind of spin off because he's so important and yet we know nothing about him until you get to David, until you get to David. Now let's just go ahead and look at this chapter. I believe when we visit Psalm 110 that David is probably looking at this Melchizedek in the same observable way that we can see in Hebrews chapter 7. Again, Melchizedek, now just to be clear, Melchizedek was a person, a mortal man, okay? Some people believe that Melchizedek is Jesus pre-incarnate. I don't think that you can find much biblical support for that. It's a nice thought, but, and it's not like you're a heretic for believing it, but if you, if you look at the way he's treated, and you look at the way he's spoken of in Psalm 110, in 110 he says, I swear you are a priest forever, right? According to the priesthood of Melchizedek. After the order, I'm sorry, of Melchizedek. So the order of Melchizedek. Otherwise he'd just say, you are Melchizedek, right? You are Melchizedek. But he's in the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is a type a type. What do I mean by that? I mean that he is a type of Christ. He is someone who is like Christ in these ways that we're about to study in Hebrews chapter 7. He's like Christ in these ways. In what ways? Well, for this Melchizedek, verse, chapter 7, verse 1, king of Salem, priest of the most high God. Now that's interesting to a Jew. And that's who this was written to, by the way. The fact that he is a king and he is a priest, a king and a priest. Does anybody know who the first king of Israel was? Saul, correct. Saul was the first king of Israel. Does anybody know why he was rejected as king? What's that? He was the Lord's choice, but he was rejected. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, he gave an unauthorized sacrifice as a priest. He was supposed to wait for Samuel to show up 
He waited seven days, and then Samuel said he'd be there. Samuel's not here. He grew impatient, so he just offered the sacrifices so that they could beat the Philistines. And then, of course, Samuel shows up like right after, right? He's probably like, oh. You know, and Saul says, oh, I forced myself to do it, you know? He's just being impatient. Saul had an agenda, and that agenda was more important, right, than obedience, and he offered an unauthorized sacrifice. He's king. He's not authorized to do that. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was not of the tribe of Levi. It was important that you were a tribe of Levi to be a priest. So I'm, I'm imagining this, okay? This is, this is kind of a cool thing to imagine. I don't know if this is exactly how this happened, but you look at a Psalm 110, and we will, but imagine David, okay? He's brought the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle, into Jerusalem, okay? And he's, he's you know, maybe it's after that time where he danced and he was so excited that, that, the, that the ark of the Lord was finally in Jerusalem. He was so happy about that. And he's reading, maybe he's studying Genesis chapter 14 and he comes to Melchizedek and he considers the same thing and he sees that he is both a priest and a king. Something that David could never be. Could never be. And David pens Psalm 110. Let's look at it. See if you're faster than me. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, and, and Jesus, by the way, in Matthew 22, made it clear that this is David speaking. This isn't a scribe writing about David. This is David saying, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So Yahweh, the Father, is speaking to the Son, Jesus, we know now, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power in holy garments from whom of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. King and priest. So after silence for a thousand years of this mystery man, Melchizedek, whom Abram brings a tenth of the spoil to, Nobody knows why. Nobody knows where this guy comes from. Finally, David says, this is where the Messiah is going to be coming. The Messiah is going to have this priesthood. Maybe not knowing why that was so important, he pens it. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he pens it. And now, we see its significance. It's fleshed out further in this chapter. He is king and priest. He gives the facts here. He met Abram, Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by his translation of his name. Okay, so now he goes from just describing what happened to now he's going to do a little digging. He's going to translate the name here. This is the writer of Hebrews. He's first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So Melchizedek, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. His name means king of righteousness, and therefore the king of righteousness can rule over Salem. Peace. You don't get peace without righteousness. So that order is necessary. You don't have peace with God without having righteousness. God is righteous. He is light, and in him dwells no darkness at all. 
If anyone walks in darkness and says they have fellowship with the light, they are a liar. Right? Because God is righteous. Me and my sin cannot, cannot go to God as I am. And maybe you feel like he should, but you would be wrong. You are lying to yourself, and you should stop doing that. He is the king of righteousness, and then he is the king of peace. Again, now this is Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek being compared with Christ. So Christ, of course, is the king of righteousness, isn't he? And the king of peace. That's what they declared at his birth. Peace on earth with whom he, those whom he is well pleased. Right? That's what the angels declared. There's going to be peace on earth with whom this king is well pleased. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, does that mean Melchizedek is eternal? No, it doesn't. We're talking about the order of his priesthood. And actually, what he's, what he's showing us here is, is what, I, what we're seeing in Genesis chapter 14. What's really weird about Genesis 14, the elephant in the room here, the most significant thing is the silence about this person. Why? Because anybody who's important in the Old Testament comes with a birth and a death. And if they're really important, they come with a, a pedigree. Right? They come with the genealogy in front of them. Melchizedek doesn't. He just shows up out of nowhere. And he gets honored. The only one who ever blessed Abraham was Melchizedek. Where does he come from? That's the point. You see? So when we come to this, that silence is saying something. It's saying that just like Melchizedek, in, as far as scripture is concerned, he has no time of birth and he has no death. So like Melchizedek, the role of the priesthood is that someone who qualifies for the priesthood of Melchizedek is eternal. That's why it says resembling the son of God. The son of God. This priesthood goes on forever. Resembling the Son of God. Notice who resembles who. Jesus doesn't resemble Melchizedek. Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. Because he is first. Jesus is first. So Melchizedek is a type of Christ. But he is not equal to Christ. He's not equal. But these things we can say about him. MacArthur points out, this is interesting, he's the king of Salem, which is, I think most convincingly, Jerusalem. So by the time Abraham comes through, now just after this in chapter 15, Abraham's told, hey, by the way, your, your people are going to go down into slavery for 400 years, and then you're going to come back, okay? But, but before he goes down, this fella, Melchizedek, is the king and priest of Salem. So again, think about David. He's there. He's the king of Jerusalem. And yet he is unable to do what this king could do. If he could do it then, why couldn't he do it over here? And of course, God gives him the inspiration to write that one day there would be a king and a priest. And in Zechariah 6, it says the same thing. Zechariah 6 I get through my modern prophets here. They go so fast. Here we are. Zechariah 6, verse 13. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord 
and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. There shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord. So we know that there must be some king priest, even in the minor prophets, that comes and sits. We get these vague, these vague images of, of these two roles into one. But really, David says it the clearest in Psalm 110. The writer of Hebrews, who we think is Paul, is basically convincing these Jews, look, Jesus, our Lord, is fulfilling the role of a higher priesthood through Melchizedek. A much higher priesthood. MacArthur points out, do you know that, that, that God has a hometown? God has a hometown. It's in Psalm 132. I thought this was so intriguing. Psalm 102. I'm sorry, 132. I'm just going to read a portion of this. Starting in verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired for it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Isn't that amazing? Right there in Jerusalem. How special. How special is that? This king of Salem. This king and priest of Salem. King of righteousness. King of peace. Without genealogy... Resembling the Son of God, he, he continues a priest forever. And then he says, look at the implications of, of how Abraham reacts to this man. Verse 4, see how this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch, I'm sorry, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. The spoils. That means the best. That word spoils means the top of the heap. So it's like if you got all this, you know, booty from the, from the, from the raid you just did and you pile it all, you put the best on top, the top of the heap. He gave 10%, a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take, tenth, take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are our descendants from Abraham, but this man who does not have his descent from them, receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. This guy's better than Abraham. As a Jew, you'd be flipping out right now, right? Obviously, there's no, no Jews here. Nobody's flipping out. But they receive, this, this guy receives tithes. Now, now again, now the, the way it's written, you have to understand there was a commandment for these Levites, these priests, to take from the people. It was a command. It was an obligation. They were commanded to give, and so they gave because it was a law to give to these men. But this man was given a tithe because he himself was worthy of it. You didn't have to be worthy to be a priest. You just had to have the pedigree. You just had to be the son of so-and-so, and you were a priest. It was automatic. It's automatic. And yet this Melchizedek is different, isn't he? He doesn't have a pedigree. There's no one commanded Abraham to give to this man, and yet he gave. 
because he reacted to who this person was out of the character of this man. Now again, Melchizedek, the man Melchizedek, is not equal to Christ. But his priestly order is something that's so significant that even Abraham reacted in this way out of joyful abundance. Joyful abundance. We don't have some sort of membership requirement in this church that you must give 10% in order to be a member of Laramie Valley Chapel. We don't have a command like that. Now you hear 10% a lot. Tithe means 10%. So we say, are you tithing? You're missing out on blessing if you're tithing. If you're not tithing, you're not tithing. But we gotta be careful because I don't wanna make it sound like it's about you. I don't know, do I feel like tithing? I don't know, I don't think God would appreciate it if I knew that. I don't think so, right? No, tithing is a response of worship. It's a worship response. When you see an amazing play, okay? Now, a lot of people, they went to go watch the Cowboys play CSU, right? And they, a lot of people were willing to pay money to go and watch the Wyoming Cowboys play football. Now, we don't put our hope in football. If you do, then you are sorely disappointed. But... People give a value to things that they find worth value. What do you spend your money on? Right? What do you spend your money on? You say, don't meddle, pastor. Now, don't be meddling on how much I give. I don't know if you give. Frankly, it's not my job to know. It's not anybody's job to know but the Lord. And we don't, so, so we don't want to pressure people to give because because of some written code. It's not in a written code. Giving 10%, this, for instance, if people say, well, giving 10%, that's, that's like in the law, and I don't follow the law. This isn't the law. Abraham didn't have the law. He gave that 10% because that's what was on his heart. So if you don't give, if you don't, if you don't tithe, the problem's not with your doctrine, the problem's with your heart. You don't have allegiance toward Christ that causes you to want to obey. You see? We would have it no other way because that doesn't give God any glory for you to just give out of obligation. Like you're giving to the Levites, right? Giving because it's a command. Like it's paying your taxes. You gotta pay your taxes. We would rather that you were moved by the Holy Spirit to be obedient to his word, to be obedient to the joy of knowing him and respond in your giving that way, just like Abraham did, who is the father of our faith, isn't he? We're all children of Abraham in that way, aren't we? He believed God and has accounted him righteousness. So we are children of Abraham in that way, aren't we? Children of faith. So we ought to look at Abraham's response to this, this man who just had the role, of, the role of Melchizedek and he gave 10%. What about Jesus Christ? who really does have an undestructible life, who truly is worthy. What about him? Have you considered that? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Why does God talk about your money? Because he wants to show you that he is actually the one who's providing. Not you. It doesn't belong to you. Do you get up and establish your health every day? Do you block the harmful... Bacteria that could go into your lungs? No. No, you can't do that. 
It's all a gift. It's a tenth of the spoils, you see. The best. The best. And that comes from a heart that loves the Lord. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by the one whom it is testified that he lives. In other words, in one case we see, because this is just a model of Christ, we see these, these men who are mortal, they die. He's really showing, the, the dimin- he's diminishing the view of the law and of the priestly system, isn't he? He's really breaking that down. He's saying, look, look, look at these guys. Look, look at Melchizedek and look at these priests. Look at the Levitical priests. These guys are mortal men. They all live and they all die and they have to be replaced by somebody else. But this Melchizedek, isn't he so much better? And the way he looks, and Christ is the fulfillment of that type. He is worthy of that. Worthy of so much more. One might even say, verse 9, that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. That's pretty, that's pretty intense, isn't it? That's intense. So because Abraham is going to produce all the children of Israel, all the tribes are going to come through Abraham, they, in essence, are giving to this priesthood. So the whole system itself is is so much less than this Melchizedek priesthood. Verse 11. Now he really turns up the heat. For if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after Melchizedek? The order of Aaron. And he's referencing again Psalm 110. Why is King David at the peak of Israel? Everybody loves King David. Why is he saying, man, there's somebody coming. The Lord said to my Lord, you're a priest forever. I declare you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek forever. Why would he say that if the Levitical priesthood was just as good? Why would he say that? For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. It is so vital that Melchizedek, the role of, of his priesthood existed in the Old Testament so that the Jews could see that there was a tribe, there was a tribe of priesthood higher. You see, you had to be one of the 12 to serve as a priest. You had to be a Levite to serve as a priest. In the, in the Jewish system, in the Levitical system, only one of 12 could serve in that system. He's saying there's another system outside of that. And I can show you from the Old Testament that exists. That's so important. When you're sharing Christ with someone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ and they are a Jew, you can show them this. Say, what about Melchizedek? Isn't this interesting? Look at this. Isn't this interesting that Abraham would give a tenth? Abraham, the guy, right? 
He's the guy. He is the best of everybody who's a Jew. Abraham's the best. He is giving to this guy, and he's being blessed by him. And the superior always blesses the inferior. That's just an observation, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of this Melchizedek priesthood, and that is powerful. That is true. Jesus, by genealogy, was unqualified to be a priest. Unqualified. Why? Because it was important that you had the pedigree to be a priest. Like I said, you couldn't be a priest unless you'd been in the line. Jesus was of the tribe of what? Does anybody know? It says right here. Judah, right? So he was qualified to be a king. He was qualified to be a king, but he was not qualified to be a priest. He was qualified to rule, but he was not qualified to forgive. In the Latin, priest means, priest is uh, pontifex, which means bridge builder. Bridge builder. Takes you from here to God. Jesus was qualified to rule, but he was not qualified to forgive. Under the Levitical system. But you see, this is why the Melchizedek priesthood is so important. 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is written of him, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek priesthood, to qualify for the Melchizedek priesthood, it wasn't important where you, who your dad was. It was important that you had an indestructible life. Why? Because in Scripture, we don't see any beginning and we don't see any end to the Melchizedek priesthood. And yet, he is honored by Abraham. Therefore, Jesus, in order to qualify to be a priest of Melchizedek, must become a priest of Melchizedek by an indestructible life. Did Jesus have an indestructible life? Amen. He rose from the grave, didn't he? He was crucified, buried, and the third day he rose again. He could not be defeated. He became a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is qualified. Even more than that. Even better than that. It says in verse 18, for on the other hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That's what makes it so much better. The law cannot save you. It can only condemn you. Do you know what that means? That means that if you are living your life in such a way that maybe you show up to church every once in a great while, but really, if I were to ask you, how do you know that you're going to go to heaven? You would say, well, I'm a pretty good person, and I think that my intentions are good. And I think that if God were to see me, he knows my intentions are good. Yes, I've sinned. Yes, like Jesus said, maybe I've looked upon another person with lustful intentions and I've committed adultery. Maybe you've taken something that doesn't belong to you so you're a thief. Maybe you've lied. Maybe you've taken the Lord's name in vain a few times. 
But after all, your intentions are good. My friend, if that's your heart, you are sorely wrong. If that's your heart, you're going to stand before God and he is going to judge you with the law. Because you have not come under the blood of Jesus Christ. You haven't learned. You haven't been changed. It says in Psalm 110, he causes those who, his saints, to follow him in holy garments. He changes you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. If you are trying to be a good person based on personal standards, a law which you made yourself, or maybe you look at the Bible, you try to be good, and you think that you're trying to be good will get you into heaven, you are wrong. God will judge your sin and he'll send you where you belong, a place prepared for you, weeping and gnashing of teeth. He sends those to hell. The law, that system can't save you. But my friend, there's hope. There's a hope that's so sure. I'm going to read it again. I love it. 619. We have this, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the holy place behind the curtain. Do you want that hope? Not this hope so hope. Not this stuff where you're just trying to be good. You don't know. You don't know what's going to happen when you die. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. Right? Terrible theology. Terrible. When you could have something so sure as this. Unmovable. Indestructible. It is not without an oath. Verse 20. It is not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made so so without an oath. But this one was made a priest by the oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. When you draw near to this priest, when you draw near to Christ, when you give your life to this king, he changes you. He causes you to walk in his ways by his spirit and he gives you an, an unmovable hope. As a Christian, as someone who follows this king, when we sin, because we do sin sometimes, we wander from the grace of God, we begin to think that we can do it on our own, or I'm sufficient, I'm doing really well, and God is so faithful to remove his grace, and you sin. We don't fear hell when that happens. Why? We don't fear hell because... Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You can have peace in God, not because you worked really hard, not because you were really sincere, you had great intentions, The road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's because you believed that Jesus did everything that was necessary for you to be there. And when you believe, it causes you to walk that way. It causes you to react 
like Abraham when you experience him. John Piper says that, that following Christ is not really a decision as much as it's a reaction. A reaction. You experience God and it causes you to want to be with him. So when we talk about tithing, giving, obedience, witnessing, right? Showing up to church. If you feel that guilt like, oh, I really should do that. That is a horrible motivation to follow Christ. Don't ever follow Christ because you feel guilted into it. Fix your heart, right? And follow the Lord because he's worthy. He's worthy. We get to enjoy him. We really do. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later And the law appoints a son who had been made perfect forever. This priest doesn't offer the blood of bulls and goats. He offers his own blood. Jesus, this high priest, offers himself. And you know what? He did that for you. Are you a sinner? Are you a poor and wretched sinner? Have you been trying to justify your life? Have you been trying to Weigh out the scales, hoping that your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds? Or are you someone who's deceived yourself by showing up in church, knowing doctrine, and hating God? And you thought that showing up here and knowing doctrine was enough. My friend, you don't know the king. If you're giving out of angry obligation, You don't know the king because this king is good. And if you really knew him, you would enjoy him and you would enjoy being obedient. You would enjoy loving him. He would have taken, as it says in Ezekiel 36, that heart of stone out of your your body and he'd put in a heart of flesh and he'd put his spirit within you and he'd cause you to walk in his ways. You could worship him like that. That's what the new covenant brings. That's what this priesthood brings brings. It's not dead religious orthodoxy. It is a living king, a living priest who offered himself for you. Don't you see how much he loves you? Why would you not follow a king like that? I don't know. I don't know. But the people around Jesus didn't. It says in John chapter 8, I love this because it ties so well into what we're talking about. Jesus knowing who He was. John chapter 8, starting in verse. Oh. 53. John 8, 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the people, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. For if I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced 
that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not even 50 years old and you have, not, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I'm it. I am the fulfillment of everything that you've hoped for, everything you've desired. He came and he paved the way for your salvation 100%. And you either receive Jesus Christ as king and priest or you don't receive him at all. He's not a concept. He's not just a dead doctrine. He's not this mystical genie that you invited into your heart one day and you thought that was it. And now you can go do whatever you want to do and he's supposed to honor it. And when he doesn't honor it, you get super mad at him. You stop showing up to church because you thought that was the problem. You never know, knew Jesus to begin with. Jesus has never intended to be your genie. Jesus is the king of glory. He is the priest of the most high God. He is our only hope. And bringing your life to him, submitting your whole life to him is the only way anybody gets saved. He's it. But when you bring your life to Christ, he takes care of all of it. All that sin, all that iniquity, all those things you've thought, said, or done that maybe nobody knows about. Jesus knew that and he died for you because of that. Because you have no other hope. He loves you. God loves you. If you don't know Christ, if you don't know Jesus in that way, then we'd be happy to make that clear for you in Scripture. We'd be happy to counsel you in that direction. If you need to give your life to Christ, you don't need us to do that. But you need to do that. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to feast upon your word, to enjoy what you have written. Lord, if we had to live under the old system, we just wouldn't, we'd be disqualified off the get-go. We fall so short of your glory that we so desperately needed a priest, someone to bring us to the Father. And you have done that, Lord, by the priesthood of Melchizedek. You are qualified and you are sworn in by God, very God. Lord, this plan of salvation is yours. Lord, we don't come to you because we're worthy. Lord, we come to you because we're sinners. There are many here, Father, if they died today, they would face judgment. And yet, Lord, you do not desire that anyone should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Lord, you do not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Lord, I pray that you show pity. Lord, I pray that your spirit convicts. We love you, Lord. We pray that you are glorified this morning through our fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.